I'm Amber Duke. I'm Saurabh Sharma. I'm Inez Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm actually going to kick us off today with the Democratic debate taking place intraparty about whether or not Biden should debate his likely challenger, former President Donald Trump. Sarab will take us through the credentialed class's revenge on Bill Ackman for going after former Harvard President Claudine Gay. Ben is going to talk about the latest deep state attack on its own government investigators. And then Inez will close us out with the latest saga involving the William Penn statue. So without further ado, the Democrats are trying to work through whether or not Biden should participate in the normal presidential debate process against Donald Trump, who is likely to win the GOP primary and be his challenger in the 2024 general election. And The Hill ran a pretty fascinating piece this week, walking through some of the Democratic objections to Biden participating in the debates. Um, the main criticism is that they believe that Biden sharing a stage with Trump would grant him unearned legitimacy. So Dick Durbin, who is the Democratic whip in the Senate, said, quote, I would think twice about it. I've been physically present at one of Trump's debates with Hillary Clinton, and I watched him do outrageous things and say outrageous things. It's just an opportunity to display his extremism. Um, and another critic of the Democratic um, debate process uh, was, uh, I believe it, it was another Democratic senator. I, I can't quite find his name right now. Um, Chris Coons, here we go. He said, I was in the room for one of the debates in 2020. Chris Wallace was the moderator. The former president in no way at all respected the rules or the tradition or decorum of presidential debates. Quote, it was a disaster. Um, and this lines up pretty well with the new Biden administration or Biden campaign strategy, that is, of painting Trump as a dictator who's not even fit to be running for president. They've been pretty tacitly supporting the moves to remove Trump from the ballot in several states. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Biden is actually entertaining this idea of eschewing the debates um, under the premise that it would allow Trump um, legitimacy as the Biden admit, uh, campaign says that he's a dictator, he's a, an authoritarian, and a threat to democracy. But what's, I think, um, the, the quite obvious tell here that this is not really about Trump is that privately, Democrats are telling the media that they are worried about Biden debating because of his obvious issues with his cognitive ability. So this is a convenient cover, a convenient excuse. Um, Biden doesn't want to get on the debate stage because all Trump has to do is appear semi-competent and he'll likely outperform Biden. Now, on the flip side, um, if Biden is able to string sentences together, then perhaps he could be seen as having a good debate performance because the bar is already set so low for him. Um, and that might be what these Democrats are doing here too, is setting the bar um, extraordinarily low so that Biden doesn't have to do much to really clear it. Um, the only uh, Democratic strategist who publicly has um, toyed with the idea of Biden actually participating is James Carville, who notes that the negatives of Biden not appearing are probably far outweighing the positives of him not appearing. And primarily due to the fact that there are so many voter questions about Biden's age, about his mental acuity, 
that not participating in the debate would essentially be an admission that he's not up to the task and that he's not capable of going through a multi-hour process um, with having to defend his record, particularly against someone as boisterous and aggressive as the former president. So I will go ahead with that and kick it over to the group and see if you all think that Biden will actually end up debating Trump um, in the general election in this coming cycle. Trump, of course, has said that he would like to have 10 debates with Biden if possible, um, but seems like we might not get any. I think that this is very similar to last time around when the Biden campaign was able to set broader expectations so low that when a week or a month came along where you know President Biden was um, you know hopped up on a cocktail of drugs strong enough to keep him basically stable during a debate it was the most impressive thing ever and people were like my goodness he's still got it uncle joe can deliver us to the promised land and so i would just urge people who are are taking a victory lap on this stuff or, or, or taking solace in this public perception of biden's health to realize that it can be um uh, a double-edged sword and it could easily backfire if for whatever reason as we get closer to election day he he finds his juice i mean he he certainly was pretty high energy at his january 6th speech i mean he was stumbling like he usually does but it it could have been a lot worse so i i just I, this is part of my broader criticism of uh, a form of cope that the right has that, you know, somehow Biden's not going to be on the ballot. His senility is going to stop him. I just don't think any of that's true. And so I, I think that he might well end up debating and he might well end up impressing. Um, so, I mean, that's that's a good rejoinder, I guess, uh, to to not um, sort of oversell the senility argument. I, I mean, th there is a general since 2020 debates have become optional um, for a lot of candidates. And Trump himself has participated in that by not debating his primary opponents thus far. Right. So um, but but we saw it in the Arizona governor's race. We've seen it periodically um, in, in other races. I mean, I, I I guess I'm of two minds as to how much this matters. On the one hand, uh, we have so many sending a horse to the Senate kind of moments um, in American politics in the last several years that this doesn't seem to be the type of thing that should raise to the top of our, our sort of civic concerns right now. Um, and particularly with both Biden and um, and Trump, both having been president before, uh, <laughs> this the, the utility of a debate and what they're going to say really uh, may not be as important as it would be for candidates who have not taken that office before. Um, that being said, I mean, I, I do think that it's a bad thing that the American people debates have been very revelatory in past um, elections. I think they are a very useful tool, if not completely ruined by the moderation, which is a whole different topic. Uh, but I do think it's fundamentally a good thing for voters to be able to hear on the fly, live, um, the two candidates who want to be their president speak to each other. And in, in that sense, I, I do um, think this is a bad and yet another negative trend in, in American politics and American democracy. That being said, I just I don't think there's going to be a debate. I, I don't think that there's just too ample excuse now for the Biden camp not to. Um, and maybe they're playing the 4D chess, uh, Sarab is suggesting, where uh, if, if Biden can string three sentences together on a debate stage, it actually helps him. But even that, the upside seems pretty small. It, like if, if I were advising Biden, I wouldn't advise him to debate um, because if he does stumble on stage, uh, it will confirm what everybody thinks, that uh, Biden is too old to do the job. Um, 
and you know trump trump has been very successful in not all but the majority of of his debate performances um and he's you know he's very funny it's it's a strength of his um so i i just i wouldn't advise if i were <laughs> if i were one of biden's advisors i wouldn't advise him to do this i just worry how often that's going to be the case just like if i were trump's advisor in the primary i would also not advise him to debate all he could do you know being so far ahead is is uh, slip up in some way that hurts him right so uh i i wonder how many more times or how more co- how much more common it is for anyone who's advising a given candidate uh, and and that candidate's interest to say nope just skip it it's not that big a deal anymore in the whatever in the internet 24-hour news cycle age it's not that important i think the challenge in the kind of upside downside analysis if we take this reporting at face value and don't assume that it's cynical and the politics behind it for a second is on the one hand, I'm not sure that it would wash with the American people that someone wants to be the president of the United States for another term and he won't stand on stage with the chief competitor, um, you know, for whatever the you know potential gain would be of not platforming Donald Trump and basically continuing an effective political gag order against him. Uh, in defense of our democracy, in air quotes, uh, by the same token, maybe the biggest liability beyond the substance of Joe Biden's policies is the idea that he is not going to be fit for four more years or even a fraction of those four more years. So if he can't stand on stage and exhibit a baseline level of energy, let alone acuity to stand toe to toe with someone who is comparatively very vigorous, uh, given his age comparatively, then, you know, I just don't see it washing. Now, is this about expectation setting? I think that is certainly a possibility. I also might cabin this or put this under the same kind of theme of whispering campaigns against Joe Biden or that essentially call into question or highlight Joe Biden's apparent deficiencies that actually do really concern Democrats. And we've seen a lot of that sort of whispering campaign coming in particular from Barack Obama's camp, which I always hold to be more significant than any other, you know, typical talking heads on corporate media channels. So to me, maybe the catch-all way to think about this particular uh, line of argumentation or this particular issue is that this is part of a hedging exercise. And the hedging exercise is Will Joe Biden be the nominee or will Joe Biden not be the nominee? If he is, in fact, the nominee, will he actually go through legitimately campaigning and will he actually go toe to toe with the actual competitor on the other side? I continue to believe, quite frankly, that Democrats are reserving the right to make him the nominee and then pull the plug on him subsequent to the convention. I know that's or or during the convention. And obviously, you know, that's a you can call that conspiratorial, but we've never necessarily been in a position like this with the kind of figure that he is in a campaign of the nature of this one. So I think Democrats keep all of their options open and floating out right now as a trial balloon, the notion of should he debate or should he not debate, I think plays into that same sort of strategy of keep all possible options open. The upside play to Saurabh's point is you said the expectation so low that if you can form a sentence, it's a victory. The other aspect, though, is maybe you really don't want to put him up on the stage against a Donald Trump down the road. And so you're reserving this option and you're floating it out there as a trial balloon and sort of shifting the Overton window of acceptability now. So 
I always think that Democrats are going to do whatever is the most flexible, whatever gives them the most optionality and whatever they perceive to be ruthlessly in their own self-interest. And I think this is a, a part of that same general strategy. And there would certainly be a debate over the rules if there were a debate. Uh, last time they argued over earpieces, drug tests, uh, breaks and COVID deaths, among other things. But uh, let's go ahead and move over to Sarab, who is going to walk us through the counterattacks on Bill Ackman, who was pivotal in getting Claudine Gay removed from the Harvard president position. Absolutely. Thank you, Amber. So this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the ongoing saga between Bill Ackman and a whole set of investors and donors to Harvard, as well as uh, the university and the broader credentialed class that it represents. Uh, for those of you who haven't been following this super closely, Bill Ackman is this hedge fund owner um, who actually got very famous and very wealthy for taking aggressive short positions over the years, especially against Herbalife when he accused them of being a multi-level marketing scheme and got the feds involved. It's a whole mess um, and he's become fabulously wealthy off of it. Anyway, Bill Ackman uh, led, in many ways, the campaign against Claudine Gay, who was the uh, recently deposed member, uh, 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 the Harvard faculty member, uh, formerly the president of Harvard College. And uh, he won, and uh, he intends on basically continuing that pressure. He's made it very clear that Claudine Gay's retirement wasn't um, everything that he wanted. He wants to see real substantive changes at the university. Um, a couple of days after this happened, uh, Claudine Gay resigning, he actually got an attack back from the media. Uh, Business Insider published a piece not about him, but about his wife, Neri Oxman, who's a professor at MIT. She's an Israeli who, uh, you know, kind of does stuff at the nexus of art and architecture. Some of her work has been funded by Jeffrey Epstein, though she contends that she didn't really uh, know Jeffrey Epstein at all. There's, there's a lot of layers to this story, and I want to take the 10,000-foot view. But this Business Insider article did a sort of deep reading of Neri Oxman's scholarship and found, uh, albeit less intense, but examples of plagiarism of, of her own in that piece. And so it started uh, this escalation between Ackman and the media. Uh, the parent company of Business Insider, which published this attack piece, uh, has said that they're engaging in a review of that scholar uh, of that uh, journalism to see if it might violate journalistic standards. We'll see uh, what comes out of that. Um, but more broadly, I think that this is a good uh, rest stop uh, for us to see uh, how the elite response to October 7th uh, attacks in Israel is going. And uh, I think that this has been a radicalization point for a lot of elite, especially sort of Jewish donor types in American life, but people more broadly. And I think it's good in a sense for right-wing interests that someone like Bill Ackman is actually experiencing uh, what Darren Beatty calls the pain box, you know, what it means to actually be in the arena going against the credentialed class in American life. He's seeing that these people are absolutely ruthless, that they aren't actually um, principled at all, that many of the so-called, uh, you know, uh, pillar institutions in American life that he had relied on and sort of been comfortable with their uh, prestige value in American life are, are actually 
political hatchet men. Uh, you know, for, for ordinary citizens, uh, there's a refrain that may or may not actually be true that you, you commit three felonies a day just because the uh, federal code is, is so uh, long and, and, and arduous. And I think for, for some of these elites in American life, they're realizing that they might have you know, three points of exposure that the press could come after them for uh, on any given day as well. And it's, it's I think, a, a good thing that someone like Ackman uh, is realizing just how unfair, just how um, vicious that the media can be, because next time someone like him, who's, you know, a busy guy, all these wealthy people are, looks at a media narrative in public life, they're going to give it a slightly more critical eye. Um, another element of this that I think is worth pointing out is uh, the way that these institutions in some way are causing this to occur to themselves because they insist on ideologizing these people's children. Bill Ackman's daughter, there's a Facebook post floating around, came back from attending Harvard and was a self-proclaimed Marxist. And, and she even sort of self-referentially said, you know, did the most cliched thing ever, went to Harvard and became a Marxist. Um, another person uh, at the highest echelons of American life, Elon Musk, uh, has experienced something very similar, where I believe one of his daughters um, uh, has uh, been very aggressively, uh, uh, you know, lobbied for transgender therapy. Um, you know, the, the, these these leaders in American life, they're quickly becoming more and more aware of just how intense the ideologization of their institutions, especially institutions interested in their children are. Um, and then you combine that with what they're seeing with the media. I think that it creates an opportunity where uh, conservatives and center-right forces more broadly can uh, appropriately, on an appropriate timeline, sort of wrap their arms around them in the coming years. It does not mean being a cheap date. It doesn't mean that, you know, Bill Ackman should be honored at CPAC for being a great conservative champion. His foundation, the Pershing Square Foundation, uh, as was rightfully pointed out by uh, a wonderful Twitter Anon P.G. Keenan, has donated hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to far-left causes over the years. And, uh, Kudos to Ackman. He he actually engaged on that thread. And who knows, maybe he's taking a second look at his philanthropy. So the right shouldn't necessarily be a cheap date for these folks, but um, there are encouraging signs that people are starting to wake up um, to a lot of the narratives that they have been fed over the last several decades by the institutional left in the United States. Just a final thread that's interesting. Both Elon Musk and others have uh, suddenly become very comfortable saying what, you know, a year and a half ago would have been considered beyond the pale great replacement theory, noticing that the mask migration that the Biden administration has point, uh, uh, presided over might be used for political purposes to turn states like Texas blue. So I, I, I think that the sands are constantly shifting on what's going on in these extraordinarily wealthy people's imaginations and lives. And we should be very grateful that Elon Musk bought X because it's allowed these narratives to propagate more easily. Um, who knows where it will end up going, but I think that uh, it is it portends well that uh, they are experiencing some of the worst of what conservatives experience in day-to-day in -day American life, uh, even though they've been in these rarefied liberal circles for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think the phrase don't be a cheap date uh, but then the whole whole of Sarab's comments is exactly where I am because yes, I mean on the other hand there is this conservative tick to just as soon as anybody with you know wealth, power, celebrity says a single 
um, potentially anti-left, not even conservative, but anti-left thing. You're like, yeah, let's make him president, you know, tomorrow. Let's make him our presidential candidate. I'm not even talking about Donald Trump here. I'm talking about like, uh, you know, Caitlyn Jenner. Okay. <laughs> um, so on the one hand, that's bad, right? Um, and we shouldn't engage in that. Um, on the other hand, I think there has been an unjustifiable level of cynicism around this. Uh, if you look at a lot of what Bill Ackman has been tweeting, has been saying, um, it, it it really starts to look like an accelerated process of realizing the the depths of, as you say, Sarah, the, the ideological capture of American institutions. And people say, well, how come you didn't see that 20 years ago? The rest of us could, right? Look, these guys are busy. I'm sure they know that Har- everybody knew that Harvard was liberal. Okay. Um, but there were a lot of busy, you know, powerful people in the world who were basically like, yeah, that's, you know, that's the, the, the toll you pay. Just like in business, DEI might be the business expense that I write off because it's what good people do. Um, they don't really have time to look into this in more depth. They don't have an interest in looking into it until it just starts to directly affect them or their bottom line um, in a more significant way. Um, and I said a few weeks ago, um, on this podcast that I think this has the potential to turn into a kind of, um, you know, moment the way that we saw for K-12 during 2020 and 2021, where a lot of apolitical, very normy type parents um, realize two things. One, the education system doesn't prioritize the needs of their children whatsoever. And two, the content their children are learning or uh, is learning or the the content their children are, um, are engaging with is... Um, is, is much more radical than they ever thought that it would be or, or thought that um, it was when they were just kind of checking in once and once uh, every so often on, on homework. I, th- I think there is the potential for a moment here um, and that the right should not ignore for that mass, that realization that higher ed is as, and especially elite universities is are, are as corrupt um, are as ideologically captured as they are and have been for decades for that piece of knowledge to go completely mainstream. Um, and that could really change the landscape um, in a way that is is could only be good for the right for a variety of reasons. Um, so I, I just would encourage people not to be overly, overly cynical um, about, because it, it really, I mean, Bill Ackman, his responses to Peachy and to others have been a real re- reconsideration. I mean, he, he said he read Chris Rufo's book and took notes, right, about uh, the culture war and the, the sort of cultural revolutionaries in America. Um, I, I think we shouldn't be so afraid of being a cheap date that we fail to take a W or recognize a W that might actually be significant and important. Yeah, I mean, a cheap date still a free meal, right? But um, I, I find myself um, feeling a little disheartened that sometimes all it takes for a massive uh, shift to happen in the way we view these issues that conservatives have been fighting on for years, if not decades, is one rich person like growing a conscience. I mean, that is really annoying. But at the same time, in a world where you have people like Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and all of these very influential left-leaning wealthy, powerful people, um, We, I think we can't be afraid to say, okay, if one person is aligned with us, at least on this issue, um, let's accept them, let's welcome them with open arms and and allow them to, to sort of take the charge. Um, because ultimately, Bill Ackman's biggest strength in this, I think, is that not only does he have institutional legitimacy, but he's also pretty much uncancelable, um, which makes him a very powerful and useful ally in this fight. I've been hardened by 
the entire evolution that we've seen before our very eyes in Bill Ackman, because uh, it may augur the idea that there could be others like him. And to the extent there is a safe space, so to speak, created for elites to exit the DEI regime and actually become its most formidable opponents, that would obviously be a massive achievement. And maybe the most important thing in Ackman's evolution is that he's put out the fact that the Jew hatred, which kind of spurred this whole first congressional testimony and hearing and then the backlash against it and then the deep dive into the plagiarism allegations for Claudine Gay and ultimately her ouster or resignation um, is that the Jew hatred is a byproduct of the DEI regime, which ultimately pits oppressed versus oppressors and seeks the destruction of the Judeo-Christian West at the end of the day. And it's not just me saying that, it's someone like a Bill Ackman saying that. That is valuable. That may well create a safe space for others to dissent from the regime. The last point that I'll make really quickly is that it's very notable that the inclination, the almost reflexive response is for Harvard, Claudine Gay, and then the likes of Business Insider and others to attack those who are challenging these institutions and individuals on the merits. Their response is immediately to attack the critics. It's not to actually defend the regime that is in the dock, so to speak, right now. And I think that speaks to a real weakness of the position of the DEI regime and a defensive posture hidden under this offensive effort to smear and attack everyone from Bill Ackman to a Chris Rufo. And with that, it's kind of a perfect transition to my segment, which is uh, about another regime that attacks its critics, critics, uh, arguably in cruel and unusual ways, certainly underhanded ones for that matter. Um, and this sort of uh, theme for me derived from a story that I was working on, a sort of part profile, part commentary on the work of Empower Oversight, which is an organization spearheaded and led largely by a couple of former Chuck Grassley staffers on the Senate Judiciary Committee who left and are using their uh, institutional knowledge and experience to go about representing the likes of a number of prominent whistleblowers for this Congress, including one of the two IRS whistleblowers, Gary Shapley, uh, pivotal to the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden and who essentially ended up pushing the revelations, which forced the sham plea deal that the DOJ cooked up with Hunter Biden's team, which collapsed and then led to his prosecution in a couple of different venues. Uh, and also several of the FBI whistleblowers who have alleged a whole raft of corruption and weaponization within the FBI. Uh, the founder of Empower Oversight, Jason Foster himself, has become the subject of a recent story. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about today, which is kind of narrow and small, but also representative of a, a much bigger cancer at the core of our administrative state. And that is that Foster, while he was serving on the Senate Judiciary Committee as a staffer, uh, the ch a chief investigator on that committee, during the most intense days of the unfolding Russiagate slash Spygate conspiracy in 2017-2018, he himself and a number of staffers uh, faced the subpoena of their communications records and not just basic information about phone numbers associated with them, but also call logs and text message logs as well. And it turns out that 
Foster himself found out about this by way of being notified by Google that Google had been served subpoenas for these records back in 2017 and covering records from late 2016 through mid-2017. Why did Foster only find out about this years later? Well, the Justice Department itself had gone to judges and secured non-disclosure orders, five of them, each one year long, preventing the likes of Google and other communications companies from telling the congressional staffers on several committees, not just Senate Judiciary, but it also appears the House Intelligence Committee and others, that staffers had their records subpoenaed. So they were kept in the dark about the fact that DOJ was snooping on them. Why was DOJ snooping on them and collecting these records? Well, it's sort of been implied that this stemmed from an investigation into a leak that some might recall of a Carter Page FISA warrant and uh, subsequent applications to re-up those warrants. Uh, there was a leak that's been investigated. There's never been a leaker found. One person was prosecuted. One Senate staffer was prosecuted uh, for not being honest with FBI agents around the leak of unclassified material that was private, uh, but not actually the Carter Page FISA warrants. So this has been sort of the the predicate for it that's been out there, sort of the explanation for why these staffers were being spied upon, essentially a, a leak investigation. But by the same token, there were any number of other issues being probed by the likes of the Senate Judiciary Committee looking at the DOJ in regard to Russiagate slash Bygate. For example, Michael Flynn's call with his Russian counterpart during the transition period, and then the subsequent efforts to railroad Michael Flynn and paint him as a a Russian agent, essentially, or colluding with the Russians and the leak of the phone call that he had with the Russian ambassador uh, on top of the Carter Page FISA warrant and then on top of other aspects of Russiagate slash Spygate that were being probed by congressional staffers during this time period. So this has the looks of a spying effort for DOJ to snoop on investigators, and it may well have been a fishing expedition. The Department of Justice Inspector General is looking into why people were spied upon Cash Patel, it should be noted, has also said that he received a similar subpoena. He would later be threatened, according to reports, by, uh, at the time, uh, senior DOJ official Rod Rosenstein threatened that his records would be subpoenaed because of his digging into DOJ slash FBI treachery around Russiagate slash Spygate. He was threatened, actually. And then uh, subsequently, of course, we had the infamous or famous Nunes memo which revealed the Carter Page FISA warrants deficiencies. And Cash Patel himself was a key author of that. So all of which is to say, we're still learning today, years later, about corruption regarding Russiagate slash Spygate. In this case, case, the DOJ going after its own probers. We'll see if the DOJ Inspector General or the House Judiciary Committee, which is also probing this, actually gets to the bottom of it. There have been records requests from House Judiciary Committee to understand why is it that the DOJ was spying on staffers doing their job in conducting oversight of DOJ during this 2017 largely time period. But what's amazing are a couple of things. One, how desensitized at this point we've become to all this. Two, at this point, probably the expectation we'd all have that anyone who's doing any sort of serious probing of the federal government within the federal government themselves is liable to be targeted. And once again, that they kept this hidden, that they had these non-disclosure orders for five years. So none of these staffers could know what had transpired 
when according to Jason Foster and Empower Oversight, there's no legitimate basis for these non-disclosure orders to have been issued, keeping this secret and keeping those who are spied upon in the dark for years. It's so rotten and corrupted. And in another time period, maybe this would be a front page story. Now it's like one of a million examples that we can find of this sort of corruption and seeming weaponization here. Uh, and I think it just speaks to just how broad and deep the corruption is. Uh, again, how desensitized we become to this. And also the fact that in contrast with, say, the Claudine Gay situation, for example, there a head rolled. You can point to a tangible victory against corrupt and weaponized now, as we see, forces weaponized in the Harvard case because Harvard itself went after, for example, the New York Post when it was probing the plagiarism stories in the first place. There is a tangible victory that can be pointed to there, and maybe that will have a deterrent effect down the road, or maybe it will accelerate heads rolling elsewhere. We've never had that within the federal government. The deep state essentially always wins and never loses, even when its corruption is exposed. Still, you can't point to tangible victories. Until there's a tangible victory, there is no deterrent, and you can expect massive corruption and weaponization at scales as yet unseen to occur going forward because there's never been a reckoning with or a grappling with the past. So with that, I kind of open up to the group for your impressions about this story and some of the broader themes that it brings to light. Yeah, I think it definitely helps to illuminate just how, as you said, deep the corruption goes in terms of the deep state's targeting of anyone who would threaten its power. And it is amazing that it's been so many years since we first learned of crossfire hurricanes and its very sketchy origins. And um, and yet we're still really uncovering just how insanely corrupt and disgusting and craven that effort to take down a, uh, a sitting uh, president, uh, elected um, president uh, was. And with that, I'll, I'll let it go to Inez. Yeah, I mean, what's really irritating about all of this is how much it's still treated as fringe by the mainstream, which is a testament to the continuing power of the media. I mean, these are all things that are corroborated out in the public. Nothing that Ben said is is reliant even on speculation, um, even if it were justified speculation. These are documents that are in the public. They are like corroborated reports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's really hard to break through, in part because of the complexity of it at this point, um, but it's really, really hard to break through. And when, when you start talking about this stuff, I think to normal uh, middle of the road people, they assume that it's just like sort of wild and conspiratorial when in fact, it's very well documented, very, like very open. I mean, there's all kinds of speculation that we, I think we're very clear here on this podcast that when we do engage in something that we suspect, but we don't know, um, but this is not one of those things, which makes it an extremely frustrating testament to the enduring power of the, the mainstream media, I think. Um, with that, uh, with, with Sarab's permission, uh, we're going to go ahead and transition for, for time purposes. Um, so the subject that I wanted to uh, bring up today for the podcast is um, the, the saga of the William Penn statue in, in Philadelphia, the latest in, of course, this iconoclastic sort of regime changey movement um, to drag down the statues associated with any part of American history that that once made us feel proud about ourselves. Um, and I think this is notable for a couple reasons. The first being, again, I don't know why. I mean, I guess I'm on a, an optimistic kick these last few weeks, but um, you know, the the note one of the notable things about it being that this is a, a win 
um, this statue is is the end of the saga is so far that the statue is going to remain up. Um, so this began with the National Park, Park Service putting out a bulletin saying that the, the statue in front of um, William Penn's house in Pennsylvania was going to be removed for uh, inclusion inclusion purposes. They did not elaborate. They didn't even bother giving an explanation. And I think that in itself is worth noting because it was just assumed uh, within the circles. And I do think this is probably has to do with some, you know, younger, woker staffers of, of uh, in, in the National Park Service and the Biden administration. Um, they didn't even think this would be an issue. Right. They they thought that they could just give this very generic uh, explanation and that there really wouldn't be much pushback against it. Um, and I think in part the reason they had that impression is because very early on and here I want to give credit to my husband, Jarrett Stepman, who not only has written this book about the war on history, about um, this the statue uh, statues issue, um, but. I, I think it's a condemnation of the Republican Party and of the right that it took them this long to realize uh, the very simple fact that it was never about Robert E. Lee or the Confederacy or debates about Amer American Civil War. It was always about dragging down symbols of America, full stop. Um, and way too many Republicans took way, way too long to realize that. And then over each figure, they would sort of debate and and um amongst themselves like is it right that we have a statue of robert e lee right um and just completely missing the point which is that none of the people who are demanding the removal of these statues made any difference between you know thomas jefferson and robert e lee right uh, some a fact that trump pointed out pretty early as well and was mocked for um so that's where we are now. It, there does seem to have been a tipping point. There was a huge pushback against removing this statue, um, not only from Republicans and from Republicans in Pennsylvania, of course, Pennsylvania, named after uh, William Penn. So uh, it, not only on the facts, which in, in this particular case, uh, William Penn was famously tolerant of the native tribes in within the region of Pennsylvania, instituted the so-called long peace um, with the tribes there. So even less reason than, than usual. But I, I do think this is sort of a turning point where everyone realized this is this is not about like, let's not have this long and elaborate debate about who who William Penn was, what his legacy is. No, like this this symbolizes something and preventing it from happening is also a symbol. So there was enormous pushback, including from Democrats, which I think, again, is an indication of the winds shifting. You have uh, Josh Shapiro out, the, the governor of Pennsylvania, um, actually pushing back against the Biden administration on this um, and expressing his support for the statue. And then his uh, tweeted out how glad he is that it's going to remain where it is. Um, I, again, I think all of these things are indications that there might be a tipping point on this for two reasons. One, you know, some part of the right, at least some substantial part of the right, actually growing some kind of backbone and, and fighting back against some of these Um iconoclastic pushes and, and realizing the importance of the symbolism involved. I mean, too little, too late, but still better than no little too late, no little too late. I don't know. Um, and, and then two, the fact that I think, again, that realization is not limited to Republicans, I think related to the, the Bill Ackman segment that we were talking about. I, I do think that there's um, the, the most optimistic thing uh, I can say at the the opening of 2024, which is likely to be incredibly consequential, not just for the election election purposes, but for all of the trends we're always talking about um, on, on this podcast, right? Um, so 
I, I, I think one of the, the, the few reasons for optimism looking into this year is I do finally get this deep sense that's, I have data points as I have the last few weeks laid them out why in specifics, but it's also just a, a I guess, a vibe shift sensation that there actually are going to be two sides joined on a lot of these battles, which is an improvement. Um, the, the, I get the most pessimistic about this country's future when it feels like there's there's not even any kind of organized opposition to what the left is doing. I think that's going to be less and less true, and I hope to bring you more and more examples of that. I, I do think that having a spine, understanding the the um, depths of the problem is a more mainstream way to look at the world than it was even a year ago or two uh, two years ago. And, you know, look, that gives us the best chance on, on the statues issue and, and many others. So uh, with that, I'll kick it out to the group. If you have anything to add about the statue itself, the particulars of, of this battle, juxtaposing it with the lost battle in Arlington over the um, Confederate Reconciliation mo uh, Monument, um, the, the sort of melting of Robert E. Lee in a very, like, uh, violent sort of public way. Um, anyway, any any of those, or or just simply the aesthetic victory of keeping up what is a beautiful statue, which I realize is probably not the most important part of any of this, but is is a, a real tragedy, especially for places like the city of Charlottesville that used to have um, these these beautiful works of art, including of Lewis and Clark um, and Sacagawea, uh, just uh, just horrible to see those torn down. Like it really does, again, give a sense of regime change, of living under a tyrannical and iconoclastic state. Yeah, I think that this is an unadulterated victory. It's very good. It, it, it might be and and you would know much better than I and as the the most clear example of actually stopping one of these things, not just creating an outrage around it. I do think for a variety of reasons, it was a slightly easier fight than um, some of the other statue uh, controversies that have happened over the last few years. And so uh, you can be you can take the optimistic angle on it, which is that this is building muscle memory to do this in, in more cases, or you can take the pessimistic case, which is that this was an easy case and conservatives are still, you know, wet noodles about this sort of thing. I wanted to also shout out uh, your husband's work. He's one of the few mainstream conservative commentators that is unapologetic doesn't matter what the statue is and actually defending American history, good, bad, and the ugly. And so uh, it's it's extremely important. I, I, I also think that in terms of mentality, um, this is uh, a useful uh, example because I, I don't think that if we were using left-wing moral scrutiny on William Penn, that he would have necessarily survived uh, this inquisition. Uh, anyone in American history up until like three and a half weeks ago is suspect under the left's moral revolutionary code. And so the approach that the right needs to have, whether it's a Confederate reconciliation monument or a statue of William Penn or a statue of Theodore Roosevelt or a statue of Thomas Jefferson is the same, which is F you, no, you don't get to tear down American history. That 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 is these these people can be given no quarter. What is starting with Robert E. Lee today will be Abraham Lincoln tomorrow will be, you know, General Eisenhower 10 years later. It 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 doesn't matter. Um the, the left is very clear that there is no principle operating here. There is only an order of operations. And so if you'd like the Thomas Jefferson statue to stay up, there needs to be 10 Robert E. Lee statues standing in the way to prevent them from getting to that stage. So great victory. And I, I hope that the right's becoming more comfortable uh, defending this kind of stuff. And this would 
as you said, be a good litmus test for someone like Bill Ackman next time that there's you know, a Confederate war memorial that uh, the left wants to take down, it'd be nice to see some of these anti-woke types speaking up about it, because it's a great example of the kind of thing that stands in the breach behind the kind of social revolutions that they might be comfortable with and the kind of social revolutions that they are less comfortable with. I think you've both nailed it. And it's a great reminder, this victory is that if you're explaining, you're losing. And it also just reminds me of this common trap that the right falls into, which is what I call the condemnation trap, where the left immediately sets the parameters of what's acceptable and what's morally just or morally right. And the right feels the need to um, play the game of, well, I don't support that one, but let's discuss the broader principle. And they've immediately set themselves up on the defensive and in the losing position. This is exactly what they did with the Robert E. Lee statue, um, where you had these weak-kneed Republicans pillorying Trump because he said that there could possibly be very fine people who were marching in order to defend the Robert E. Lee statue, which was separate from the white supremacist um, protests that took place in Charlottesville. Um, and then when we saw the Robert E. Lee statue being melted in this dark, uh, disturbing way um, marked by the Washington Post there with video cameras, even though this was supposed to be done secretly, I think that was a tipping point for many to see um, the symbolism of um, the, the almost demonic um, aesthetic of what they're doing to American history. Um, that symbolism, I, I think, was a wake-up call for many. Uh, I, I concur in all these remarks. The statue is sort of, the statue issue as a general matter is kind of the ultimate slippery slope. I've said before, by Democrat standards, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, commemorations will be toppled to the extent the the anti- cultural revolution continues apace so anything that stops it is a plus statues stand or the country ultimately falls uh, or at least directionally that's the way we're, we would go here so any stand and victory here is a positive one the only slight um you know kind of cautionary point that i would make is it's interesting that this sanity prevailed in pennsylvania just like we've seen sanity and cogency frankly prevail over state senator john fetterman one of the two senators of the state uh it's an election year obviously and so i would caution that any appearances of democrat moderation may be purely tactical and political but that said we should still celebrate the w's when we rack them up and look for lessons to be taken from them and and hold them up and secure future w's after that we're going to go ahead and move into our final thoughts, and we will start with Sarabas. He is a very busy young man, as we all know. Thank you, Amber. Um, I, I, I just wanted to tap on this point again about the the statues. I think it's it's such a great litmus test issue for whether or not someone is useful at all to the right and therefore consequently consequentially useful to the country. Um, I, I don't know if uh, we had talked about the the Robert E. Lee statue melting um, when it had happened on on NatCon squad, but it is a very good reminder of what exactly undergirds the mentality of these cultural revolutionaries. I want to paralyze it, uh, parallelize it to something going on in Europe where you're starting to see Islamic activists speak much more openly. They're like, well, this is revenge for colonialism. That's why we're taking over your countries. And it's like, oh, okay, you scratch 
um, you know, just the thinnest coat of paint on the outside of this. And you realize that there's sort of deep ethnic, racial, cultural grievance that undergirds a lot of this. It's not about building an American story we can all be proud of. It's a revenge fantasy by fetishists. That's why they gratuitously decided to melt down the statue and take a video of it. Um, they see it as the, you know, euthanization of the old America and the birthing of a new one. And Republicans, conservatives, sane people of all stripes have every right to tell them that they can go to screw off and that they have no right to, uh, you know, create a new America that no one asked for through their, you know, low, low stakes cultural warfare that they engage on, you know, poking and prodding at every single uh, cultural touchstone in American life from coast to coast day by day. Um, it needs to be total total war on these people stopping their encroaching march and so again great great victory had today i i really felt like uh watching that robert e lee melting was like watching him die again i really can't overstate how radicalizing of a moment it was um, but since we didn't talk a whole lot about the gop primary on this episode i will quickly run through the latest foibles from the nikki haley campaign um, she of course is betting it all on new hampshire which has a large group of independents that she thinks will swing for her. But the latest polls that have come out this week um, have suggested that her catapulting into second place, um, her momentum is, is starting to, to wane, starting to fall. She is still down about 20 percentage points to the former president, Donald Trump. Um, she has uh, had several campaign trail gaffes, which is, I guess, semi-unusual for her in that she's very tightly PR-controlled, where she insulted Iowans <laughs> on two separate bases, um, both said that New Hampshire had to correct Iowans' vote in the caucuses, and then also said that she has to change personalities when she goes from Iowa to New Hampshire. Of course, um, she caught heat for her comments about the Civil War and whether or not slavery was one of the impetuses for that. Um, and I, I think her her latest week of disaster is a reminder of how weak of a candidate she always has been. And her so-called momentum was entirely fabricated by the GOP establishment donor class, as well as some um, anti-Trump Democratic donors as well. And seeing her um, immediately fumble the bag, so to speak, um, should be, I think, a welcome sign to those of us who are rightly concerned about her interventionist foreign policy and her complete lack of ability to understand the moment that conservatives are in in this country and continually focus on um, some of the sillier battles on, on uh, random tax policy and other parts of her campaign that seem completely out of touch. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, briefly note two things in my final thoughts. One um, is this case that Elon Musk is bringing against the administrative state, against the NLRB, which I think may actually turn out to be quite important, especially given the court's uh, seeming restructuring of the powers of the administrative state piece by piece, um, narrowing precedents like Chevron, right? Um, in this case, you have administrative law judges, ALJs, who are extremely difficult to remove and have extraordinary independence. And in the, in the case of Elon Musk, he's 
uh, being charged with retaliatory behavior towards employees that have criticized him. Um, let's not forget that the National Labor Relations Board is also the the one that um, came after the Federalists and uh, and uh, producer owner Ben Dominich then at the time for making a joke on Twitter about sending his employees to the salt mines. Um, and uh, that turned into a very real free speech and uh, labor relations case. So this is an independent agency that is very much out of control, um, that is very much judge, jury, and executioner of, of the laws that it supposedly administers. Um, and so this case actually challenges uh, the the constitutionality of having um, these kinds of judges who are totally isolated, they can only be removed in very, very limited circumstances, um, who aren't, you know, appointed through the Article Three process. They're not, uh, they're, they're, they're not Article Three judges, they're not. Um, and so Elon Musk here is actually just asking for his right to trial by jury to actually be tried in a federal court under federal rules. Um, and he's being denied that and being given an administrative quote unquote trial uh, that has very, very different uh, standards of, of innocence and, and different um, abilities to defend himself. So I think this this actually uh, not only is important because, of course, they are coming after just like they're coming after Bill Ackman before that and continuing. They are coming after Elon Musk. Um, there was a time where we would be horrified to imagine that, uh, you know, private citizens speaking out aggressively against uh, the, the the current uh, political establishment would have meant that automatically they would go through investigations of their business. Um, this is just another thing that we accept in 2024 in America that we anticipate and um, uh, and in fact don't imagine that anyone can challenge the regime without going through this kind of process. But this this particular case, I think, is worth keeping an eye on. Um, and the second brief thing is uh, the arrest of hundreds of people um, in in Manhattan uh, for shutting down. <clears throat> simultaneously the Holland Tunnel, Manhattan Bridge, and Brooklyn Bridge, which brought traffic to a standstill in the city, produced some viral videos. Uh, but is once again, in this case, yes, they they arrested these people. And, you know, thank you to the NYPD for, for doing that. Um, but highlights two things. One, the problem of, of actually having DAs uh, in there who won't charge. We'll see how many of these protesters are actually charged with anything substantial, right? Arresting them is nice, but uh, they, they've broken a myriad of laws. I mean, the, the protesters here have launched balloons into JFK airport airspace. I don't know if people were paying attention, but there were simultaneous protesters. These are, I should know, allegedly pro-Palestine um, protesters and anti-Israel protests. But at this point, it seems pretty clear that my prediction from four, five weeks ago that this would turn into a broader BLM style moment for the left uh, appears to be true. It seems almost disjointed at this point from what's actually happening in Gaza um, and seems more domestically focused, but they tried to shut down. They fortunately didn't succeed, but tried to simultaneously shut down JFK airport and LAX airport, which would have completely screwed us airspace and probably hundreds of thousands of travelers throughout the, the country. Um, these are, incredibly antisocial and illegal acts. Uh, we'll see what comes of these arrests, if there will be any real consequences, but highlights once again that disorder, just like in 2020, you know, depending on which side the disorder is coming from, if you're a J6er who rioted in the Capitol, um, you stayed in pretrial detention without any um, ability to exercise your rights as a U.S. citizen to speedy trial and and, and all the rest of it um, for, for years before even going to trial and receiving your sentence, right? Um, if you were 
a rioter in 2020, or you are one of these protesters who is illegally shutting down very consequential travel, and it's only a matter of time before somebody dies, right, in one of these protests, whether it's from one of the protesters themselves, from somebody who takes matters into their own hands because the law and order has been abandoned, or it's somebody who's stuck in traffic who is in an in um, ambulance and needs to get to the hospital, for example. I mean, when you're talking about stopping hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, some percentage of them, it won't just be an inconvenience. It'll be a disaster or, or very dangerous to stop. So, um, you know, it's only a matter of time before this, this gets much, much uglier. We can expect it to continue, I think, basically every weekend at this point. Um, it's kind of this one of these funny things that doesn't get I don't think the mainstream coverage that it it deserves, uh, but is very clearly the left, the street left, so to speak, uh, asserting itself and its ability to anything from inter inconvenience to endanger uh, everyone around them. And I think that'll probably be a part of the 2024 campaign, just like it was a part of the 2020 campaign, even if uh, Democrats were loath to admit it. And worth noting, by the way, while we we're recording, I think the sentencing came down for uh, the notorious Ray Epps, who gets one year probation, in stark contrast to how other J Sixers were treated. Also, the DC U.S. Attorney, I think on the anniversary of J Six or a day before, said that they would be pursuing a thousand or more additional prosecutions. And this is of people who are even at further removed from violent actions at the Capitol or massive property destruction at the Capitol. So uh, the contrast remains incredibly stark and the two-tier justice system uh, has been sustained and continues to be sustained. Uh, on another aspect of, I think, 2024 chicanery that we can expect, one thing that I've been looking for is how is the censorship regime going to operate this year? The censorship regime has obviously gotten scrutiny over the last four years that it had never been subjected to previously. Obviously, there's a massive Supreme Court case that's going to come, unfortunately, late in the election, where we'll find out uh, what the limits are for government colluding and coordinating with social media companies to silence wrong thinkers and chill wrong thinkers. Uh, I saw today there's a headline or in recent days, a headline that Rumble, a YouTube alternative, which, of course, hosts conservatives and other dissenting viewpoints, is actually subject to an active and ongoing investigation by the SEC. The details of that investigation are scant, but obviously worth noting. Substack as well, there's been a whisper campaign, even more than a whisper campaign, uh, trying to accuse Substack of uh, platforming and essentially supporting Nazis and a massive backlash against Substack. Uh, and then, of course, obviously, there's been the continued uh, withering assault waged, leveled against Elon Musk and X. And I think the question is going to be, what is the censorship regime going to look like in 2024? I think personally, there's going to be a concerted effort to try and nuke X in toto in defense of democracy, of course. Uh, but presumably, the censorship regime will be far more pervasive for any and all platforms that are not already totally cowed or uh, really captured essentially by the administrative state. And I'm thinking there of the likes of uh, Meta and others. What will the censorship regime look like? What tactics will it use this time? Look for, I think, the nuking or attempted nuking or at least draining the resources of and harassing any and all platforms of any size that permit the dissemination of dissenting views. You've got Trump himself gagged in at least one case 
you have the censorship regime that already still persists in the non X slash rumble slash Substack space. What happens to X rumble Substack and others this year? Uh, it's something that we ought to be keeping a, a very close eye on and there ought to be offensive measures taken and the argument should be put forth why these platforms need to be defended right now, because you can be sure that they're going to be attacked, which is really going to be attacked on millions of dissenting viewpoints and millions of dissenting Americans in the selection year. And that's going to do it for us this week on behalf of Inez, Ben, and Sarav. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Amber Duke, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.